the joy of obedience. I told a story for the children a minute ago about a dog. You mind if I tell you another story? Dogs have a high degree of loyalty. Dogs have been said to be man's best friend. And in many ways, it's true. Now, I'm not particularly a dog lover. I actually tend to be more of a cat lover. But that's neither here nor there. A gentleman had a faithful dog. He would work in the woods every day. He and his dog. Just the two of them. And, as his custom was, he would go out into the the, uh, clearing with his lunch pail a good ways from his home. And he would set his lunch pail down in a safe little place and tell his faithful, loyal dog to sit there and stay. To stay there and guard his lunch pail while he went a little ways off and began working in the woods. And so on this day, like most days, he did that. He, he went and set his pail down and told his trusty friend to stay there and guard his lunch as he was working away in the woods. And as he worked, it was a it was a warm and dry day, like kind of like it is today, although probably a little warmer. And as he worked, he was working away and further and further away in the woods, and all of a sudden it came to his attention that somehow, somewhere, a piece of woods had caught on fire. And that fire was spreading out of hand, and it spread through the woods and up to the clearing where he had left his lunch and his faithful friend. Well, before he could get back to the clearing, that fire had burned out of control. And when he finally reached the side of his friend, his friend was still there, dead, next to his lunch pail. The dog had died in faithful service to his master, in faithful obedience. And as he related this sad story later to a friend, he told his friend, You know, I always had to be careful what I told him to do because he would always do it. The joy of obedience. We read in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus told his disciples, his followers and his disciples there on the mount in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will in no means pass from the law, till all is fulfilled. God has his requirements for you and for me. And in every age, God has expected his followers to follow, to obey his requirements. Now I want to ask you, friends, why do we obey? Well, let's take it to a more, a more tangible example for a moment. Why do children obey their parents? Why do pets do what we say we ask them to do. Well, there's a there's a, a few motivators that we can use. Probably some motivators that I should have learned to use on Oreo when he was a little puppy, before he became the rambunctious brat that I was 
telling about in the children's story. One which is probably the most basic motivator for humans and animals alike is a fear of pain, avoidance of pain, or we could say a fear of punishment. Fear works as a motivator. It can be a very strong motivator. It may not necessarily be a very good motivator, but it can be a very strong motivator. If I think that perhaps I will experience pain, and when I was a child, there was more than one time when I experienced, as the result of some choices that I had made, a sharp and repeated pain on my rear end that was administered by a loving parent. I did not think that it was a loving parent at the time. But looking back, I know now that it was. (laughs) Most of us could probably remember times of experiencing something like that. You know, it didn't have to be administered very many times before that fear of punishment was enough to prevent me from doing the same thing that had gotten me in trouble the last time. Now, of course, kind of on a similar note, there's also a desire for reward. So, for example, if mommy or dad says, if you get all of your chores done by 5 o'clock, you'll get to have a bowl full of ice cream. And then at 5 o'clock, I have my chores done and I get a bowl of ice cream. The next day, I will also do my chores by 5 o'clock. Only if there's an offer of ice cream. (laughs) You see, it works. But only to a point. Because, you see, there are inherently some problems with this system of motivation and obedience. Because, you see, as soon as the fear of punishment is gone, or as soon as the hope of reward is gone, I no longer have any motivation to be obedient. I I think of uh, a story that my wife tells me, and I will exaggerate it for the the purposes of illustration, but my wife um, has a younger brother, Christina's younger brother, Eric, and you may have met Eric. But uh, growing up, of course, she was always bigger because she was older, two years older. And she could make him do whatever she said. Up to a point. Because she could whoop him if he didn't. Right? But you know what happens to boys at a certain point in their, in their growing? At a certain point, and girls, at a certain point... The girl stops growing, and he keeps growing. And, and pretty soon, he realized at a certain age that he was as big as she was. And he could whip her. And you know, the, the dynamics of that relationship changed at that point in time. And he no longer did everything that she told him to do. Okay, I exaggerate the story a little bit, but it mostly is true. <laughs> and anyone who has siblings knows what I'm talking about, especially a brother-sister type of relationship. You see, we no long, when we no longer fear the punishment, unless there is some higher motivation, then why should I follow these arcane rules that I don't want to follow? 
anymore. Now let's take a look at what we were looking at a minute, a moment ago. At God's law. God, like any loving parent, has laid out his requirements for you and for me. But you see, the very fundamental, the very most basic requirement of God is to love. Now, what is love? Love is a choice. Love is more than a choice. Love is a principle. It's a principle that means forgetting self and caring more about the other person than I do about myself. And how can I, by using a stick, beat someone else up enough to make them love me? Is that possible? Are there consequences? Let me ask you this. Are there consequences for disobeying God's law? Mm-hmm. Yes, there are. In fact, eternal death is the consequence. The wages of sin is death. But can I, by being motivated by the fear of death, be convinced to be a good Christian all of the time? Is that enough motivation? Well, maybe we can put, instead of just a stick, we can add a carrot. You know, you've heard the phrase, carrots and sticks. You use a carrot to motivate the good behavior, and you use a stick to punish the bad behavior. Well, perhaps we could put a a carrot on the other end of the spectrum. And the carrot goes something like this. If you do well, you will have everlasting life forever and ever and be happy for the rest of eternity. And if you do poorly, then you will die. You've got a, a, and, and, and the Bible does say this. If you read in the Old Testament, especially the book of Deuteronomy, for obedience you will receive blessings. For disobedience you receive cursings. And you know, I think in every person's life, just like in the life of a little puppy dog, there's a point in time where a person needs either a carrot or a stick to realize the difference between right and wrong. And sometimes it has to be a little bit of both. But as I read the Bible, I discover that there is so much more to obedience than just carrots and sticks. Because you see, the whole purpose of God's law is to teach us to love. And love in itself is inherently, true love, is inherently altruistic. That is, I do good for the sake of doing good itself without any hope of receiving reward. Whether that's a carrot or not a stick. Whichever way that is, I do the good for the sake of the good itself. Or in the case of the Christian, I do good for the sake of God who has been so good to me that I allow His love to flow through me. You see, friends, the human heart, you and I, are so sinful, we're so selfish, we're not even capable of generating that kind of love, that kind of unselfishness in and of ourselves. You and I can't do it. I can't manufacture that kind of love. How are we saved? Are we saved by obedience? Are we saved by keeping God's law? It is by 
grace that you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We have no great reason to boast. We have nothing that we can do to merit or earn our salvation. So what is the point then of obedience? Why should I obey? Why should I care to be so loving? To worry so much, if I may use that term, we don't worry, but to worry so much about being obedient if God's got it already all taken care of. You see, friends, at the very heart of the gospel is this principle of love. We love him because he first loved us. And I submit to you today, friends, that to accept his love, to accept his salvation, is inherently to accept the principles of his love and allow those principles to play out in my life. In other words, to accept God's love, in order to accept his love, I have to allow it to flow into me and through me to others. I have to allow the gospel to change me before it will do me an ounce of good. Has God established his requirements in the Bible? He has established them very clearly. In Exodus chapter 20, he established the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make a graven image for the purpose of worship. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother, etc., etc., etc. Every one of these principles is an outworking of the principle of love. Not one of the Ten Commandments teaches us how to be selfish. Every one of the Ten Commandments is another way to allow God's love to flow back through my heart in love to God and love to my fellow man. Do not think, Jesus says, that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) And Jesus goes on here in the Sermon on the Mount, in the rest of this chapter, to list out several of the Ten Commandments and show how they apply, not just in the specific, not just in the narrow sense, but in the broad sense and applying them to our hearts. Let me ask you a question. How many here are murderers? <laughs> well, you know where I'm going with this. How many, how many of you have gone out with a gun or a, or a knife or something and actually killed somebody? And you're sitting here, well, I, I hope not. You're sitting If you really have done that, I, I really, I mean, I'm sorry, but I hope you're in jail. <laughs> Jesus said in verse 21 of Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger 
of hellfire. Now, how many of us have been angry with someone? (laughs) How many of us have been guilty of calling someone names? Ugly names? Yeah? It's the sin of murder. You've murdered that person's reputation in your heart. And perhaps the only reason you haven't physically gone out and killed that person was your lack of opportunity. Or fear. Or your fear of of consequences, right? (laughs) I am still glad there are consequences. I think if there weren't swift consequences, we'd have a whole lot more evil. A whole lot, yeah, drama. Well, it's worse than drama. (laughs) Someone's listening. (laughs) We'd have a whole lot more evil in this world if it weren't for some of those swift consequences that come about. (laughs) But you see, friends, that the thing that Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount is what I've just been saying. We need to raise our motivation for obedience above just the fear of punishment or even the desire for reward. You see, friends, the fear of hellfire can bring someone into a church pew. The desire to go to heaven can make someone a zealous sinner. But only the grace of God can make a sinner into a saint. Only the grace of Christ can transform your heart, can change your motives, so that no matter whether someone is looking or not, I'm going to be the same person behind closed doors as I am out in public. It doesn't matter whether I receive a reward. It doesn't matter whether I receive a carrot or a stick or neither or both that I will be true as that precious puppy dog was true to his master sitting there guarding his lunch to the point of his death. Greater love has no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 we read this last week I believe but let's turn there again. It's one of my favorite verses. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. Friends, is there a place for obedience? in our Christian walk? Is there joy in obedience? How far can you take obedience before it turns into legalism? All right, all right. I can keep, I can keep the Ten Commandments. I mean, that's okay, right? No murders, no adulteries, no thefts. Okay, we can... And, and keeping the Sabbath, Okay. That maybe that's not legalism, but I mean, if we talk about the way I dress, now preachers quit to preaching. Gone to meddling now. <laughs> what about the way I eat? What about the kind of music that I listen to? 
what about the kind of entertainment that I enjoy? What about the way that I spend my free time? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? Or is that just some weirdo extremists that try to bring the Bible in where it ought not belong? What do you think, friends? Are we Seventh-day Adventists because we are Adventists only on the seventh day of the week? Or are we Seventh-day Adventists because first and foremost, we're Adventists seven days a week looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And we keep the Sabbath on his special seventh day, holy, the Sabbath day. Friends, I want to submit to you that obedience is not something that you can do on a nine-to-five schedule. Obedience is not something you can do one day a week. It's not something you can clock in and clock out. Or I can say this far and no farther. Because at the point at which you say to the Spirit of God, this far and no farther, that is the point at which the spirit of Satan can come into your life and wreak havoc as far as you push back the Spirit of God. So I'm going to go to medicine now. Not really, but you can throw me out after I'm done if you want. Is there a place in our life for Christian standards? Christian standards. Is there a place for all those piddly little rules? Now let me say this too. I am not advocating Pharisaism. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, he spends an entire chapter, and we may get into that in one, one of these sermons, not today, He spends an entire chapter rebuking the Pharisees because they had this pretense of piety. They had this pretend holiness where they would spend their lives trying and trying and trying to be the best that they could be. But in their heart, they weren't right. So when when I say Christian standards, I do not mean by that that we have 101 petty rules. But what I mean by that is do we allow the principles of this book to go beyond the walls of this church and to affect the way that we live our lives on a day-by-day basis. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Have you ever had a sword drill where you just look up Bible verses and see how fast you can get there? Well, we're not going to do a sword drill today, but I'm going to have you look up a few Bible verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know, friends, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, friends, we have often have this idea. And it, it actually came back all the way back in the Bible times. People back in the Bible times had this idea, and we still have this idea today. That the spiritual world is somewhere up here, separate and apart 
from the physical world and that my body is mine. I can do whatever I want to if it makes me happy. If it makes me feel good, I can do it. If it tastes good, I can eat it. Right? And that's just me. My body's mine to do what I want. That's what I think. But that's not what the Bible says. My body is not mine. First of all, where did I come from? Besides my mom and my dad, I mean, where did I really come from? I was created by God. Our great, 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 great grandparents were who? Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve. And God planted that seed of life in your mother's womb. Every one of you is a special creation of God. You are God's by creation. But not only that, you are God's by redemption. Jesus paid the price of his life for you. If he just wanted someone that looked like you, he could have made somebody else that looked just like you. But he wanted you. He didn't want someone that looked like you. He wants you. He paid the price of his life for you. Do you owe him everything that you have? Everything that you are? In your physical body, as well as in the spiritual sense. Now, Paul is writing in this context in the context of a church that was, for lack of a better term, basically involved in sexual immorality. The people in this church were not living an upright lifestyle. They were involved in sexual sin. And because of this, Paul is rebuking the Corinthian believers here and saying, don't you know that your body is not yours to do whatever you want to with it? Your body belongs to God. Before it belongs to any other human being, you can't just give it away to any other human being because God owns it already. Friends, this is the basis for our understanding of purity in the Christian life. You are not your own. There is no separation between the spiritual being and the physical being. Do we believe that God's Holy Spirit comes and dwells in our hearts? How does God's Spirit communicate with us? It's not through here, it's through here. Okay, we, we say it's here. But by heart, we mean the very part of our mind that connects with spiritual things. We say that, they say it's a heart, but it's actually our mind. Anything that we do to our bodies that clogs our minds, that makes our minds not function the way that they should, has a direct impact upon our spiritual well-being. Any way that we present our bodies to others reflects upon not just ourselves, but upon God who created us and God who redeemed us. How do we dress? How do we carry ourselves in this world? In 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 3, And I'm sorry, ladies, a lot of times when we talk about dress, we, us guys, I'll, I'll take the blame, us guys try to point the finger at women and say it's the women who aren't dressing right. Let me just say this. It goes both ways. Amen. When we talk about dress and modesty in dress and decency in dress, we're talking about men and women together mm-hmm. and being respectful of who God has created us to be 
and with the understanding that our bodies are not something for us to show off. Our bodies are not something for us to do with whatever we please. But they're already owned. They're already bought. We're already taken, as it were. Even before you're married, you're already taken first by God. He has a prior claim on your life. First, first Peter 3, verse 3. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Let it rather be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And this, this, friends, is precisely the reason why historically our church has always focused on not just modesty, but the principle behind modesty, which is allowing God to flow through our hearts, His beauty to make us beautiful on the inside, to the point that we don't need anything extra to make us beautiful on the outside. Well, let's go on. What about our music? What about entertainment? How do, does our entertainment reflect our view of God? How can we be obedient or disobedient in our choice of entertainment? There's a story that we find in Exodus chapter 32, and we don't have time to turn there, but I'll tell you the story very briefly. God speaks His law, the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. Then Moses and Joshua go up on the mountain... And Moses goes all the way up and communes with God and receives the the two tables of stone with the Ten Commandments. And he comes down and he and Joshua are coming down the mountain. And Joshua says to Moses, and I'm I'm paraphrasing the story a little bit, but Joshua says to Moses, I hear this sound in the camp. Now God has already revealed to Moses what is going on. He says, you need to go down there because the people have apostatized. The people are worshiping idols. So they're going down the mountain and they round the bend and they hear this clatter and this clamor and this noise. And Joshua says, oh no, we've come under attack. Some some enemies have come out from somewhere and attacked the people of Israel. What are we going to do? And Moses says, wait, listen, listen again. That's not the sound of battle. That is the sound of music. That is the sound of the people prostituting themselves to a false god. You see, friends, music has always, in the Bible and elsewhere, been connected with worship. Music, beautiful music, is connected with the worship of the angels of God in heaven. God created music before he ever created you and me. Music is associated with worship. And the devil has usurped music and used it in the service of his own worship, of worship of false gods and false idols. We find in Daniel chapter 3 the story of the three uh, Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace and it says when the, mu- when the music, the king says, when the music starts playing you need to bow down and worship this idol. And they say, oh king it doesn't matter how many times the music plays, we're not going to worship your idol. And they were thrown in the fiery furnace. It's a, such an incredible story. But friends, I want to ask you Does the music that you listen to reflect the worship of God? Or does it reflect the worship of a false God? Does it sound as though... Now, I'm meddling now. I know I'm meddling. Does it sound as though someone listening, would they hear the sound of war? Or would they hear the sound 
of worship. And I want to submit to you, friends, that even if you put Christian words to some of the music that we hear, it doesn't make it Christian music. Even if it has Christian lyrics, it's not necessarily Christian music. Now, I'm not going to stand here and try to prescribe exactly what you can and can't listen to. That's not my job. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to go home and I want you to study. I want you to listen carefully to the music that's in your collection and say, is this something that glorifies God? Or is this something that I listen to because it makes me feel good? And because I like the way it sounds or I like the friends that go to this kind of music with me. How do we glorify God in our entertainment? What we watch on the, on the TV or on the movie set what, or on the smartphone even now, right? <laughs> what we watch, what we listen to, does it, does it follow the principles of Philippians 4.8? Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are honest, true, praiseworthy, all of these things, things of good report, is what we consume, the media that we consume. Does it follow the principles that we find in the Word of God? Okay, now I'm really getting to meddling. What about the things that we physically eat? What are our bodies made out of? Our bodies are made out of the things that we eat. Have you ever thought about that? You are what you eat. If you put... And, and you know that then there's, along with that, there's the, the computer saying that I learned when I was... In, and the computers are real good at this. Garbage in, garbage out, right? You've heard that? Well, what about our bodies if we continually fill our bodies with things that we know are not the best for us and those things are continually clouding our mind clouding our consciousness how can we expect to honor God you know and I'll I'll say this and I'll pass on by it in Acts chapter 15 and verse 20 Paul not Paul, but uh, actually the, the entire church put together a command, a mandate for the early Christian church. These are the things that you, the Gentile believers in particular, need to follow. The decision was, do we need to require, put on the Gentile believers all of the requirements of Judaism? Or do we need to focus just on the gospel of Christ? And this is the requirement that they decided to put on the Gentile believers, Acts 15 and verse 20. But we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, so idolatry, from sexual immorality, okay, from things strangled and from blood. Things strangled and blood. That is actually a direct reference back to the health laws of Leviticus. And we find the same thing again in verse 29, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. It's the exact same list, four things. Two of the four things refer back to the health laws of Leviticus. These were not the sacrificial laws, these were not the ceremonial laws, but these were laws that God put in place to protect our bodies so that our minds can be clear to hear His voice. And we as a Seventh-day Adventist church have long stood firm 
on our understanding that the clean and unclean meats of Leviticus 11 are still binding. By this token, if this is the, the foundation by which we understand that Leviticus 11 is still binding, by the same token, I'm going to get me th- myself thrown out here, okay? By the same token, we ought to eat, if we eat meat, we ought to prepare it according to what it says here. Without the blood. And that's not, that's not something that I'm saying. That's not something that our church really emphasizes. But if we were to go by the Bible, that ought to be how we prepare it. I would submit to you today, friends, that there is a tremendous amount of research that has gone in over the last probably 20 years into a whole foods, plant-based diet. And secular scientists, not Christian even at all, but secular scientists are recognizing the benefit to our health of eating a whole foods, plant-based diet. That is to say, food that grows out of the ground, not food that had a mother or father, but food... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but food that grows out of the ground and as close... Isn't that what we find in the Bible? Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the tree? You know, evolution teaches us that our ancestors went around hunter-gatherers and they would, you know, kill a deer and they'd eat it and all this stuff. The Bible teaches us that our ancestors were Adam and Eve and they ate fruit from the tree of life. My friends, I'm not going to stay here, stand here today and set myself up as an authority and tell you what you can and can't eat. But friends, if we are followers of Christ, I want to encourage you, I want to mandate that you read God's Word and ask yourself, how should I live my life so that my mind can be the most clear, so that I can follow God's requirements in the best way possible? Most importantly, lest we forget, Matthew 25, and I'll summarize this. I won't read this for for sake of time. Jesus says in the day of judgment, when he comes in the clouds of heaven, as all his holy angels with him, and he separates out the sheep and the goats, those who who have followed him and those who have not followed him. Upon what criteria does he base his decision? I was hungry. And you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. You see, friends, this is the highest ideal of God's law. It's not something we do for ourselves. It's not that we become an enclave of perfect little holy people that is trying to, trying to work our way to heaven. No, it's not that at all. It's because we have received the grace of Christ in our hearts. And we do everything that He has asked us to do. Even the hard things, like changing our lifestyle. But the whole purpose of it is so that when we see another hungry, or thirsty, or in need, spiritual need, that we can have that love of Christ in our hearts and be ready and able to serve that person through the grace and the love of Christ. 
In closing, I want to ask you to turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. In summary, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous of good works. Friends, there's coming a day very soon when Jesus is coming back in the clouds of heaven. Will he find you looking for that blessed hope in loving service, obeying his every word? Will he find you as that puppy dog, dead or alive? I'm going to do what my master told me to do. Friends, that is the appeal that I make for you today. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but I want you to answer that question in your own heart. Will you do what he asks you to do? Loving Father in heaven, Lord, we long for that day that's coming very soon when we will see you face to face. Lord, help us to experience the joy of obedience each and every day of our lives. Teach us, Lord, with the apple of your eye, so that when we see you face to face, we will be like you, for we shall see you as you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.